This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This episode is sponsored by Chameleon Cold Brew, purveyors of incredibly delicious organic cold brew coffee. Now, I am a fairly busy person. You are too. You are probably doing something else while you're listening to this podcast. So you're busy. Maybe you don't even have time to make a cup of coffee. I highly recommend, especially in the summer when it's hot, Chameleon Cold Brew. It is ready for you to enjoy right out of the bottle, or you can get the kind that you kind of customize yourself in the big bottle. My go-to flavor is the mocha flavor. As some of you may know, if you follow me on Twitter, I get migraines every once in a while. And a cure for migraines, no, I'm not going to call it a cure. Something that helps is caffeine and chocolate. Now, I'll take any excuse to drink coffee and have some chocolate. Uh, So I I mean, I, I enjoy it all the time, but it's almost medicinal for me. That's what I'm saying. Now, whether you're at home, work, or the gym, or on the go, you can enjoy Chameleon Cold Brew, again, straight out of the bottle or with a splash of milk for a to-go latte. Every sip is super smooth, low acid, and highly caffeinated. All of my favorite things. Plus, you can find Chameleon Cold Brew anywhere you shop. Well, practically anywhere. Whole Foods, Target, Safeway, Kroger, Walmart, and Publix. We thank Chameleon Cold Brew for sponsoring the podcast. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you help make this podcast possible. Look, there's a bigger Never Trump movement out there. There's just a huge courage deficit in this country. And we've got a lot of profiles in Washington of these guys that call you and call me all the time and say, oh, my God, I can't believe I just had to stand behind that at a, at, sorry, at, at an event. <laughs> yeah, well, there I am. Are you, are you saying that on TV? Uh, I wasn't okay. trying to. I, yeah. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week is a return to listener questions. Those are questions submitted by you, the listener, to our email address, which is withfriendslikepod at gmail. We will be hearing from Alex, who has a question about the aftermath of Trump's election in the classroom. That is the second segment. The first segment, well, Rick Wilson is back. I always kind of thought of Rick Wilson as someone that, you know, I discovered. He's like my never Trumper. But apparently I have to share him with the rest of the world now because his book is coming out. Everything Trump touches dies. A Republican strategist gets real about the worst president ever. It's a great read. It's a fun read. It did make me bang my head against my desk a little. And I'm going to talk to him about why. Coming right up, Rick Wilson. So I read your book. Okay. I'm glad. And 
uh, we we have some things to talk about. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this what I'm saying to you right now in the edit because I want to hold myself accountable that there's some things I want to talk to you about that are not going to be the most fun things we've ever talked about. Okay. But let's start with the fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess my first question for you just about the book specifically, is this the book you would have predicted you'd write when, if someone told you three years ago, hey, you're going to have a book out Absolutely in 2018? <laughs> Absolutely not. And, you know, in two big areas, first off, you know, that it would be a bonfire of the inanities about Donald Trump and about how how wrecked my party has become. And and the other thing I wouldn't have expected to write was a book where I kind of, you know, did a pretty rigorous self-assessment on a lot of the things we did and I did and in the terms of of, you know, building up a a demographic in this country that was primed and ready for Donald Trump to – to kidnap them and run away with them. Yeah, I think that listeners to this program are probably going to find that part even more satisfying than your many um, colorful descriptions uh, of Trump's character and physical being. <laughs> and, and maybe that's also what I would love to get more of a preview from from you, which is th- this did this did prompt some soul searching. And I, you know, we we knew each other pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do feel like I know you well enough that you're not someone that does a whole lot of sober soul searching, let's say. Look, I, I mean, you, you're quick witted. And I, I know that, you know, late at night, a couple of bourbons in you, we could probably talk meaning of life. But this book gave you a chance to really, like, do some of that cold yeah, stone sober I, I look, in the middle I, of the day. I mean, Anna, I, I wrote this book. And yeah, you know what? People are in the, the and. You know, false modesty is the worst kind. It's I'm funny, I'm witty, I'm cutting as hell. You know, I burned down Donald Trump in 27 different ways that most people hadn't even thought of. Um, but there is an element to this, both in terms of the sort of self-analysis I did about, you know, what kind of culpability do we have about the type of people that we kept in the party and defended and pretended they didn't exist, or we tried to keep them, you know, to shut their mouths or what have you. Um and and I, I'm I've accepted some responsibility on that front, I really have. And and on the other side of it, in some of the concluding chapters, you know, I kind of open up a little bit with also a kind of vision I have for where a conservative party that's you know built for built for the the, the future um, might go. And so those things were not stuff that I would have expected to put out in the public domain. You know, as as here's my prescription for it. But I feel like so many other people in my in my party have have so much have abandoned so much that at least I want to leave some stone tablets with some etchings on them that say, you know, this was the path we didn't take. Do you have anything specific in mind when you look back and at the things that you did and and things you did in concert with other people practicing the dark dark arts of campaign, you know, um, wizardry? You know, it's not the ads that I look back on and regret. I I don't regret those ads. I think they were very hard. They were fair. They were in the lane. They were tough. Um, I regret particularly – and look, and I I have a little merit badge because I was the first Republican consultant, I'm pretty sure, to come out and say this birther shit is just cuckoo. This is racist bullshit. You've got to stop it. And and I did that not just because it was racist bullshit but because I thought it was politically – uh, stupid in the long term. I thought it was, you know, handing Barack Obama a sword to cut off our heads with. But 
I think that in the post-2008 window where, where I was never a Palin fanboy, but I, was, I, I, I liked that crack of that populism. And I should have realized it sooner that at some point that populism wasn't a machine we could turn on and off or a stimulus we could apply and then, and then remove. Once you start those people on that substance, they stay on it. And, and that we, we wanted that in 20, in 2008, it, it emerged. And by 2010, it was a decisive factor in our victory. And I really should have thought harder about the danger of it outside of the hands of, you know, semi-responsible people. I mean, look, I, I kind of analogize it to, to just have World War II. The U.S. and the Russians both built nuclear weapons. We both built enormous nuclear arsenals. But we were both basically responsible parties. We had wildly different approaches and ideologies, but we were both basically responsible parties. There was nobody in the Soviet leadership who wanted to turn America into a lake of radioactive fire and vice versa. The deterrence equation was there. And I kind of look at the populism thing in that way. Like Democrats have their own emotionally evocative, super hot button issues that get to the core of their base. And, and Republicans built those, that populist portfolio. And unfortunately, you know, we left a very dangerous set of tools laying around for Donald Trump and the Russians to pick up and run with. We might be heading into the contentious, you know, material I was worried about sooner than I thought, because you mentioned early on in the book that there's, you know, tools of campaigning. They're kind of morally neutral. You know, the scalpel in the hands of a surgeon is a tool and the scalpel in the hands of a madman is a weapon. And I think you sort of just made that same kind of analogy with populism, like populism can be used mm-hmm. responsibly and populism can be used irresponsibly. I may have been, and, look, uh, like I said, I, I think after 2010, that machine may have started to run on itself even before Trump. And, and the, the weird sort of synchronicity of Fox and the sudden emergence of social media, um, Twitter and Facebook groups that were basically monocultures where people heard exactly what they wanted to hear. You know, it was always he's a Kenyan Muslim. It's always, you know, it's George Soros doing it. It's not your, you know, it's not your problem. It's it's the deep the deep conspiracy of the liberal elite against you. You know, I, and I don't know what I, I don't, there there are some things I probably could have done, but there were a lot of things that 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 no one can see a crisis emerging and it, it, like that because it came from so many different streams at one time. It's not like an airplane crash. In an airplane crash, you can always trace back like the er point. You can trace back the origin of the fuck up. You know when it went wrong, whether it was the pilot not getting enough sleep or the plane breaking or some other planning problem. You can always trace that back. This had so many streams running together at one moment. And 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 I've tried to deconstruct it a lot. And it's just a it's it's a it's a horrible puzzle. And we're one we're living through every day. Yes. And, and it is probably pointless to try and find any one, you know, flashpoint that things could have been different if we had done things differently. But I'll just give a preview of the thing that bothered me in the book, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is there's a fair amount of like equal and oppositeism, not what aboutism, I would say. I don't think you do that, but you do do a fair amount of like there's a whole like passage where you say you talk about what Trump fans hated about Obama fans and you're, you kind of make this point that sure that Obama fans are like, you know, the other side of a, the same coin. 
Do you really think that? Because oh, well, come on now. Look, <laughs> there was a fanboy nature and a fanaticism, especially in the beginning, about Obama. And now I will say this: it wasn't as imbued with the ugly nature of Trump support. It was it was starry eyed. Look, we had people writing, you know, practically writing fan fiction about Barack. Hell, not practically about Barack Obama. There, there was a there was a reflexive defense of him on every single point. There was some, there are some serious parallels there. I'm not going to I'm not going to walk that back. I really believe that a lot of people saw Barack Obama. Remember, he was the messiah. He was the one. He was all he was, you know, the the global the global celebrity, the Nobel Prize right out the gate, all those things. And it led to a kind of fervor. And I think it cooled a little bit when progressives discovered that Barack Obama was pretty much a centrist technocrat and not the you know the the wild eyed socialist that Republicans painted him out to be, um, but there was a lot of that and and there's there's a categorical difference between the tone of it. I mean, yes, and what, that's important. That's it seems kind of important. It's important, but I will <laughs> that say seems this: like a big the, difference. The, the 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 passion of Trump supporters always mm-hmm. has something ugly and inferior about it. Yes, and it always has a kind of of raw edge to it, and there's this. There's this dark little thing inside of it. It really bugs me. It really bothers me as a as an American to look back on it now. Because you know what? I participated in that shit too. Okay. I fully freely admit it. I'm not doing a mea culpa, you know, because I'm some libtard, whatever. I'm looking back and now I see an awful lot of that is now used as an excuse by the Trump folks. Oh, well, what about Barack Obama? They said he was Jesus, you know, all that stuff. And and, you know, I Look, this sort of rigorous self-assessment thing in here, it's not its not easy for anybody. And, and you know, I think a lot of people have been emailing me in the last couple of days and saying, yeah, I knew the book was going to be like a fire, fireball on Trump. I knew it was going to be like a flamethrower on Trump. And I love that part. But I didn't know you would talk about it and, you know, and, and, and show us this like more personal side of you. And I, you know what? I didn't really write the book thinking that I was like giving in some like deep insight into me. But maybe I and, did. And yet you are. And in fact, let's let's pull back just a second because I think just as interesting in your story um, as the move from GOP operative to never Trump you know, flamethrower is the move from the shadows to the spotlight. Mm. Uh, your professional career prior to a couple of years ago was spent voluntarily – you know, in the dark. Sure. You know, I have I we have many mutual friends mm-hmm. who I won't even name right now because I know they don't like to be named. Right. <laughs> right. Whose whose livelihoods kind of depend on your average Joe or Jane not knowing who they are. Sure. Right. And and, and I had a particular role where I was a good lightning rod. Okay, people knew I could come and bring in the nuclear weapon, the bad ad at the end. They also knew that that I could quietly give counsel way before it was necessary to have somebody out there getting all the slings and arrows. And, you know, the candidate could say, oh, well, that's a horrible ad from that evil super PAC of, you know, the American PAC for freedom and blah, blah, blah that Rick Wilson works for. So there was a, it, I, it was easy to like uh, have me stay. And I stayed in the, in the shadows on, on the, the private counsel part. But I, you know, was a public face on when there was a terrible ad that had to be made and somebody had to take the blame for it. There I was. So, but yeah, I, I didn't, I mean, I went on TV occasionally and I talked occasionally about stuff and I wrote occasionally about stuff, but 
the the the, the difference of you know of this isn't just about a change in my career, but it's about the fact you know to, that I that I have to bear witness, and I know that sounds a little over the top, but I have to bear witness to this thing. I cannot. I cannot justify morally or ethically or professionally or politically sitting quietly while this guy wrecks everything I ever worked for and and wrecks the philosophy underneath it that, you know, as you and I have talked before, there's a lot of things we can agree on about the broad strokes, about individual liberty and about the role of the Constitution and the and the correct role of, of the state and the government and people's lives. And I see him taking this in a direction that neither party five years ago would have found even remotely acceptable and even remotely justifiable. I mean, he's expanding the size of government lickety split because he wants to round up brown people and put them in cages and send them back to their countries, which are shitholes in his mind. And, but and it's, you know, it's just it, it's it's. Uh, the witness part of this has been the surprise for me, and, and and in terms of the public exposure of this, it's it's weird. It doesn't. I mean, I was a I was a stealthy guy for a lot of my bottom of my career. What do your deep state friends think of all this? Well, they are. Let's put it this way: the deep state and the and a lot of the people in the second and third tiers of the Trump administration have reached a sort of rapprochement where they're going to have a Russia policy and where they're going to have a foreign policy that's disconnected from the tweets. Unfortunately, the tweets always reset it to zero every time, and they're deeply concerned. Um, and furrowed browed. <laughs> and, and furrowed browed. Um, but, but, you know, on the Russia front, there are alarm bells going off. And the reason you saw Mike Pompeo sign the, the Scripple thing today and you know, the reason you've heard these guys speaking out more aggressively isn't just to defend Trump. And part of it is, but it isn't just to do that. It's because they are they are seeing the same movie playing again that played in 2016. And at the end of this election cycle, there are going to be the same kind of you know uh, leaks and information hits on candidates at the end. They feel like the Russians are playing you know a – uh, Yankees type baseball here, and we are a, a little league team, and they're great. They're terrified. A lot of them have gone pretty quiet um, because a lot of them, frankly, are are. Look, we all know the secret under Mueller. All this stuff he's doing, he's building out these cases and this evidence because he already has all the information from signals intelligence and from intelligence product. He already has it all, but you got to make a case without using those highly classified sources and methods. And so a lot of these guys are just, are, they're, they're eye rolling every day on the no collusion, no conspiracy, all this stuff. I mean, the, the Don Jr. meeting alone is sufficient for most of them to say, okay, now we can open the gate on other stuff when the time comes. And, and, and it will, it, it, it will. And, you know, go to war against the FBI and go to war against the CIA and go to war against the National Security Agency and see how that works out for you. <laughs> And that is all interesting to me, but I'm actually asking what they think about what's happening with you. Oh. Because the the phrase bearing witness, you know, has a very specific I know. meaning in Christian theology. Mm-hmm. And one of the things it is is a form of evangelism. Right? Yep. You are you are bearing witness in order to also shine a light that people might come forth. Well, let me say this about uh, my email in the last few days. Um, both my regular public-facing emails and my, you know, private encrypted blah, blah, blah emails. Um, 
have been flooded with comments from friends from that world and friends from that era um, and military friends who who are I mean and then their their compliments and their praise and uh, have been overwhelming and you know and and almost too much for in a couple cases I mean almost almost too much in a couple cases like you know you cannot call me brave like you are you know I can't I can't I can't take that you know, I, from somebody who's actually, you know, seen the enemy up close. I, I can't, you know, I'm, a, I'm a fucking political consultant who says bad things about an asshole president. I'm not a guy who's like face down Al Qaeda, you know? Um, but the reaction, you know, inside that, that community of friends that I have had for a long time uh, has been uh, overwhelmingly heartening and, and complimentary. And, 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 and I, you know, I, I've said this on the air and I've said this in the book. There's a bigger community out there of people who oppose Donald Trump, but moral courage is in short supply. It is in it is in incredibly short supply, and and I I think there's a very, um, you know I think there's a very pivotal role to play by you know leading by example and by and by standing up and 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 being an example. And you know what? And the Trump people. Are they're coming down on me as hard as they can right now? They're, they're you know they're playing their little stupid Twitter mob games and and doing all the you know uh, stupid Trump tricks as I call them. But uh, you know I think I've proven by now that I'm not easily intimidated by slack jawed morons um, who are anonymous assholes on Twitter. Um, and 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 I'm not intimidated by this president. You know what? I've been around a long time. I've seen good. I've seen bad. I've seen up. I've seen down. I've seen the Republican Party in and out of power, and and I know that that fads in presidential leadership pass. I'm going to jump on that word brave too, because I see it used a lot. Um, for instance. In the, in the Me Too conversation, I don't want to draw too big a parallel here, but I think this one point might be salient, which is sometimes people use the word brave when they what they really mean is I can't do that or I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, listen, I spoke to a member of the U.S. Senate, and I'll be clear, not from Florida, <laughs> okay. two days ago, the day, the, day, the day before the release. And I had sent this person a copy of the book. And it's a he, it's, you know, the math is easy. It's a he. And he said to me, he said, I'd sent him a copy a couple of days before and he read it in a sitting. And I said, you, and he said, you are, he goes, you have got a pair on you. I'm like, well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And he said, mm-hmm. he said, you know, I, I wish I could. I wish I could. I'm like, there's no wishing. There's no wishing. You have to decide. You have to decide to jump in the pool. You have to decide to jump out of the airplane. You have to decide. And, and you know, I decided. I mean, and I, I, I am not saying I have some like particular like super moral character or that I'm braver than anybody else, but I reached a sticking point and and I couldn't stand by while he while this president does what he's doing. I, I, I and you know what the 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 political career that I had for thirty years was amazing. I enjoyed every minute of it. Okay, it was fun. I did a lot of cool shit. I made a lot of money. I went a lot of cool places. I helped a lot of people I really admired. And now if if my new job is to is to stand up on this guy and write books and talk about it and 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 analyze what I know is going on and see it and see going on and to strip the pain off the sort of like crack haze around Trump, 
well, that's my new that's my new mission. If that's if that's how it turns out, that's how it turns out. Okay, I want to bookmark crack haze, but I also <laughs> want to say because I think this is something that people will ask. So let's get it out there, just to be clear. The money you're making now out of being a never Trump person, is that more or less than the money you were making being a GOP operative? Scratch a zero off the end of it. Okay. <laughs> it's a lot less. This is a yeah. this is a material sacrifice and and it is it, it you know all these people who say, "Oh, can't you be brave?" I mean, you're going to be fine. Let's not. Let's not. Put, oh, let's look, not I'm be, not going to uh, listen. I'm not going to yeah, be living okay, in the van right, down right, by the yeah, river. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. uh, I'm not. I'm not. That's that's not the issue here. But but you know, the smartest thing for me to do, if I'd been like a truly amoral asshole, and I wrote this in the book, I would have shut my mouth. I would have said something like, "Well, I guess Donald Trump really surprised me, and I'm I'm really amazed how good he's doing." And I would have opened up a bullshit super PAC. And I would have gone out there and bought a bunch of email lists, and I would have written in ways that I can write, because I can write for whatever I have to write for, emails that just made Donald Trump the most heroic figure ever. And we would have raised a fucking ton of money from these credulous people who click send on the American Eagle Patriot Palinpack.com over and over again. And, you know, I could have fleeced them for millions of dollars. But, uh, I, you know, like I said— I, I, it would maybe that would have been smarter, but I, you know what? I sleep great at night. <laughs> I sleep great every night. I wake up every day. I'm like in a good mood. I'm like ready to go out and swing the fucking sword every day. I feel like a pirate. It's great. Let's be honest. The wrong outfit or an outfit mishap can ruin an otherwise perfectly good day. At Everlane, that is not an option. They create timeless styles using only the finest materials, wools, cashmere, pima cotton, and they produce them at the best ethical factories around the world. So you can feel confident about how you look and where your clothes come from. And the best part, they reveal their costs and never inflate their markups like most brands, and it's quality stuff. You don't have to worry about zippers tearing or buttons falling off. Now, there are plenty of places you can pay premium prices for mid-range quality, but that's not Everlane. They make luxury basics at ethical factories without retail markups. Everlane only makes premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials, like I said. In addition to cashmere and wool, they also have silk that's really wonderful, uh, thick silk that doesn't wrinkle easily. And they are going to tell you their real costs for using those premium materials so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. They are radically transparent about every step in the process from those materials they use to the factories the materials go to and from the factories to you. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Their clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Essentials like the Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. You can try the Cashmere Crew, which I have, although I'm not wearing it in in the summer, (laughs) the 100% human box cut tee, the silk short sleeve square shirt. That is one I have. I absolutely love it. Uh, The high rise skinny jean or the day flat. I have the day flat as well and wear it all the time. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now, you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends. Plus, you'll get free shipping on that first order. That's everlane.com slash friends to check out my personalized collection. Again, everlane.com slash friends.
Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. Okay, we're going to go back to Crack Haze because Rick, my friend, my dear friend. Yes, my dear. Is there a way I could get you to not use mental health and drug use as a punchline quite so often? (laughs) I will be more mindful of that. Because, you know, all right, because it's going to be some listeners are going to be there's going to be a crossover here of people who listen to the show and people buy your book. Hopefully, I'm, I'm, I hope a lot of people buy it. You describe Trump voters as high on oxy and as meth addled a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet I know a lot more meth addicts and opioid abusers than you do. You, 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 <laughs> you very probably do. Although I will tell you. Um, well, you live in Florida. I live so, in Florida and, right. so, and I live yeah. in Florida. So um, actually, I may know I, more people who cook meth than you do. That, but, that is probably true. I know the users, <laughs> but and and I will tell you in my in my affluent little circle, uh, there are certainly a lot of people with with uh, you know oxycontin problems. Yep. And and yes, I do use that as a sort of throwaway snarky line. I I will admit that I will be more mindful about that. Yeah, because you know very few of the meth addicts and you know dope users that I know are actually Trump supporters. I mean, <laughs> God it's bless just them. it's just. Yeah, I know. I know. It's weird. But also, like, what? of course, most of the ones that I know that that, that are still around are sober today. So, of course, they're not uh, Trump supporters. That, that was actually, that's the kind of joke you shouldn't make. Um, and then, of course, like, you know, like, I'm a crazy person, like, literally. So I get sensitive every once in a while because I know, again, tons of literally clinically insane people mm-hmm. and people who are head trauma. And none of them are fascists. None of them. <laughs> you know? None of them have had that mental health issue cause them to be, you know, thirsty for authoritarian rule. So, just right, loud just and clear. I, I, okay. I, I hear you, and I and I know you're speaking as my friend. So I got yes. that. All right, and I have to tell you. So this is the stuff that I almost don't want to talk about because part of me was looking at this book, and I, you know, it's easy to love the Trump stuff. It's also easy for me as your friend to read the self examination and feel like, yes, you know, 
I'm so glad Rick is doing that. But there's a part of me reading this that I was like, are we really, and, and I know we've talked about this before, but reading this made me think about it again, which is that are we really going to go back to our separate corners after this is over? Like, what are the big lessons about what to do differently? Like, we, we started this conversation off mm-hmm. of what would you have done differently? Mm-hmm. But moving forward, are, are you, could you, can you look yourself in the eye in the mirror and make those same kinds of attack ads as long as they're for a non-authoritarian person? Or are you well, going to I mean, fundamentally— look, the last, the last attack ad I made— um, I know who it was for, was, yes. Yeah, it was against Roy Moore. And, right. and look, I, I've reached the point now where— to you know, to do the jokey Liam Neeson thing, I have a particular set of skills. I am also now a free agent, and if these folks on the on the Republican side, you know, continue to go down this path, there will be places and times where whether I'm helping another Republican in a primary, or an independent, or you know, if the circumstances are Roy Moore level, maybe a Democrat. We'll see how it turns out. But you know, my skill set is fungible. And, and, you know, forgetting that I applied my skill set to extremely liberal Republicans, like Rudy Giuliani, or <laughs> well, extremely at, conservative. At, at the time. Yeah, at the, at the t- time. Oh, uh, that's a whole, boy, that's, <laughs> now can I, can, yeah, mm, that's a whole no, separate. No, please, if we're going to, I wanted to ask you about Rudy. I didn't know if you were going to have time. If you want to sidebar quick on Rudy, go. Okay, so I'm a part of a big Rudy alumni network. There's a lot of us yeah. have worked for him over the last 25, 30 years, and Every single person in this in this set of, this rambling conversation, these email chains right now, talking about Rudy, no one can get to him. No one can talk to him. He is completely a, a a totally different human being than we thought he was, and and has gone so far off the rails and so deep in the Trump water that that one a person who, who has known him for longer than I have, and I've been around the block a few times now with Rudy since '97, a person who's known him longer than I have described him to me the other day as as like another person inhabiting Rudy's body, mm. a completely different person inhabiting Rudy's body. And I believe it. I mean, I, the, 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 the behavior and, and, the, and, and the, the, the affect is completely – I mean, I see little echoes of the old Rudy, but they are immediately swamped by the new crazy of the new Rudy. Is he the person that you've been surprised by the most? In, in the post-Trump era? No, Paul Ryan. Yeah. Paul Ryan. Because, and, and I think you and I may have even talked about this at one point, way back in 12 or something, it's a long time ago, is that, you know, Paul Ryan was, was a guy who spoke conservative language in an accessible, fluent way that ordinary people could understand. He could carry a message. He wasn't, there was no evil in Paul Ryan. And there still isn't evil in him, but there is fear. And and he has he has it, it's the most remarkable and disappointing story of all of these, I think, in some ways, because he was a guy who could have had a legacy. He could have been a legislative great. He could have been someone who went down in history as somebody who truly started to reform government and entitlements in ways that were both smart and necessary and even humane. But Instead, he will be seen in history as a guy who enabled and empowered Donald Trump to obstruct justice, who enabled and empowered Donald Trump to try to stop the Russia investigation, and who turned over the keys to Congress and and acted like he was a junior manager at the Trump Hotel 
and not the Speaker of the House of Representatives, a co-equal branch of government. Paul Ryan has been the biggest heartbreak for me. As a, as a Republican, as a movement conservative, that's been the thing that really crushed me. And I, I, it's a relationship I'll never have again. I mean, this is a guy who has gone um, completely overboard to, to, to help Donald Trump in every way he can, even though he knows and has admitted and his people his staff, they they all know, they all admit it. This is we're we're doing the wrong things to help this guy, and he will not stop. Um, Nunez, he will not stop. Um, you know, Goodlatte, he will not stop any of these guys that are running interference. And you know, part of it, he was afraid of losing the speakership, and now he's resigning and leaving. He's running. So mm-hmm. it's it's really that's really been the biggest disappointment. Well, you know, I never. I think fully bought into the mystique of Paul Ryan. Like he always struck me as someone who was more, um, how do I put this, good at talking about ideas than actually having ideas, you know? Um, Believe me, I'll take good at talking. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something. But also, as, as I see it unfold, part of me wonders if we should have known something was wrong when we saw that really and truly, above all else, reti- entitlement reform, reform was something he valued more than, than anything. And it, 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 it's become clear that he values that more than the people receiving the entitlements themselves, right? Like, mm-hmm. you used to be able to kind of believe that, okay, we may disagree about you know, about budgets, but we can agree that the that the point of this all is to help the little people somehow, right? To help people who need it, to not let them fall through the cracks. Right. And it's weirdly like with him, it's become clear, like, no, it was like the process that he cared about. It's the actual, it's the actual entitlement reform and not what you get by doing entitlement reform. Right. And, <laughs> right. And that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit of political it, nerdery. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 it's definitely there. Yeah. And it turns out, I guess, you know, if you're devoted above all else to tax cuts, then maybe you're just a shitty person. Like, <laughs> uh, look, uh, maybe if because if, 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 if you're devoted to tax cuts in the service of something else, I guess is my point. Right. Uh, you know, and like, look, I, that's I, one thing. I, but he really seems like, no, it's just just the tax cuts. It, I mean, look, he had to settle for one takeaway. And the yeah. greatest disappointment, I've, I talked to some folks in, in leadership the other day, um, and they've been polling the tax cut since they passed it. Oh. <laughs> because they thought that tax cut was going to put I, – I'm, I'm not kidding you. I talked to somebody around their leadership team, and they said to me in the beginning, oh, the tax cut's going to buy us somewhere between 8 and 12 points on the generic ballot. Mm. And I was like – at the time, I was like, no, bro. But no, ain't nothing does that. Nothing moves the generic ballot eight or twelve point eight to twelve points. Well, they've been polling it ever since then because he's obsessed with it. He wants to know if it's working. It was already baked in the cake before they passed it, and nothing. It's not moving the numbers for the Republicans. Some people, you know, in the in the middle, in the upper middle class, have seen a little bit of a bump, but. You know, the bill was engineered, and and I'm honest about it in the book and elsewhere. The bill was engineered to help 150 hedge fund managers on Wall Street yeah. and their corporate clients. And I know this because, and I tell the story in the book, a good friend of mine was one of the lobbyists sitting in Mitch McConnell's office writing the fucking bill. And I asked him, I was like, so is this going to do any job creation? His literal response was, how the fuck do I know? I don't care. 
<laughs> at least he's uh, at least he's honest. I don't know. Like, um, actually, so this this is this gets us to maybe where we some place where we can close because we sidebarred on to Paul Ryan because I was I was really curious. Um, but we were talking about you and how this book does and doesn't change. You know what you're going to be doing later. And you've pointed out you have a skill set that's just it is what it is. Like that your your dark arts can be used for good or for evil, and you want to use them more for good. I want to take that expertise and apply it to something you talk about in the book a little bit, which is that you you do deign to give some advice to Democrats. I do um, give them some advice. You 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 very generously offer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I don't want to have I don't want to have a debate about the policies, but I want to ask you. Um, so you you put out gun control and abortion as two things that Democrats need to kind of rethink their their um, position on in terms of you know what kinds of candidates we allow. I'll go with progressives. Progressives, what progressives need to do, not necessarily Democratic Party. Um, and so you talk about guns and 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 uh, reproductive rights as being a place that they should perhaps you know uh, not have such a doctrinaire approach. Let's leave aside actually arguing the policy. And let mm-hmm. me ask you this. If you were told, okay, I have a candidate that wants to have, you know, code word or not, sensible gun reform, mm-hmm. gun, gun law reform, couldn't you make that sound better at least? Isn't that part of what you do? It is part of what I do. But, I, but the reason I picked that particular issue is I can tell you something about the Republican base. There is literally nothing the Democrats can say. There's literally no word or phrase they can choose that will win this issue with Republicans. It was the secret sauce for 30 years in these campaigns. You want to know how I get white male Democratic voters every damn time? Gun control. They, the Democrats will not understand this issue. They, they, and we, you and I have talked about this a lot. And, yeah. And we, we've gone round and round on it. And every time, every time— there will be some guy like me, and look, believe me, I'm not the only person that can make that ad. And it's and, and you know, why did Connor Lamb win in part in a Pennsylvania district? And Western Pennsylvania is not exactly anti-gun. Um, he won because he went out there and he was careful about how he phrased it and talked about honoring the Second Amendment and not burning it all down and not and not doing the well, things that feel that's good. What, not that- doing. I'm, but here's the thing. Not okay. doing the things that they, they impulsively do every time. I mean, when you've got people saying, we're going to seize all the automatic, semi-automatic handguns and the machine gun AR. You know, it, it gives it gives Republicans every time this like this like moment where they let everything else go. They forget all the other bullshit. And and they're like, OK, nope, Second Amendment thing. And they're going to take my goddamn gun. And I hate them. And they it's the deepest trope inside the the sort of reflexive. GOP base. And it's a big, and Democrats keep forgetting this. And I, t- I we've talked about this. In Florida, 34% of the concealed carry permit holders are Democrats. They're not even understanding their own base on this question. I know how heartrending Sandy Hook and Parkland and everything and, and, and Las Vegas and all these things are. I, I acknowledge it. I admit it. It's horrifying. But but every time that that this argument gets public, it becomes this conflation between law-abiding gun owners and the crazy people, and the and the law-abiding gun owners hear Democrats basically saying, "You're all the same people as the murderers in Parkland and Las Vegas and Sandy Hook, and therefore we're taking your guns away." That's what they hear every time. See, I, I, we're just gonna, we're gonna just go, we're gonna continue to go round and round on this. I know we, we are. are. 
Because it's just because I feel like the reason why so you, the people you're talking about hear gun confiscation when you, we we <laughs> talk about you know um, thoughtful um, gun laws mm-hmm. is because people like you made that part of, made that the debate. You made it that debate. You know, like look, uh, and and look, uh, when we're going to have to undo that if we want to get anywhere on this. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to have to undo that call and response somehow. Well, the, the, I, I think Democrats need to, to look at this issue and, and ask a hard question. Why is it that every single time they convince themselves after a terrible tragedy, that now is the time to do something sweeping and fundamental on this issue? And every time they do it, every single time they do it, what happens? They get their hand slapped. They lose politically. They think it's the, and we've talked about this before. When you look at the most important problem panel questions in surveys, every time there's an incident like this, gun control will shoot up to around, you know, 15 or 17 percent. And within two weeks, it's back down where it always is in those panels at about zero to one percent. Everything else on that list is more top of mind for regular voters. That's the one issue Democrats, they're not going to win on it, but they lo- that they often lose on it. Mm. I will be interested to see what happens with this issue if the Parkland effect is indeed an effect, let's say. Well, because we know, you from, know, the, we know well from the Florida voter file that the number of young voters registering in Florida yeah. is, is, is not, it's not a dramatic increase. It's statistically inside the noise right now. It's stochastic. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not that, that prediction that they were going to register you know, a thousand new voters a week and all that stuff. It just hasn't, it hasn't come to pass. But, but you do know, but but I hear in that argument, you know, that if millennials do register and vote, then the whole conversation will change. Yeah. Oh, look, but, you know, it's it's like if I find a unicorn tomorrow, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have the coolest horse in the world. It, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow that, that, that that's a possibility. I think that the likelihood of millennials registering and voting is slightly um, slightly more higher than the unicorn. Than, but you know, genetic engineering is making great strides. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to wrap it up because we could continue to go round we and round, could. and we and, and we do, and you'll be back next week, with, and we'll talk about love, it again. We could go round and round. <laughs> but but actually, I want to say one last thing about about the book, which is I did not know until I read this book that apparently you're also a Firefly fan. Fuck yes. All right. Well, fellow brown coat. Absolutely. Um, I'll take you. I'll take you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Anna. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. Like, for instance, this podcast. You listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office, which is the most awesome government agency, right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer, and the mail carrier just picks it up. Just click print and mail and you're done. It could not be easier. 
I use stamps.com a lot for returning Amazon stuff. I am a Prime member and, you know, that makes it really easy (laughs) to order things, sometimes too easy. Uh, And no matter how useful it is um, to be able to do Prime, it's always very useful to be able to mail stuff back and not to have to pay the cost, uh, the high cost of mailing back. Uh, If you pay U.S. postage costs, you actually, it's, it's, it's worth it. Right now, you can use Friends for a special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Don't wait. Again, that is $55 worth of free postage. Go nuts with your Prime membership, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone, or as we like to think about it, the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Friends. That's stamps.com, and enter Friends. Sunbasket has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. But for me, what matters is that Sunbasket helps me eat healthier. It's as simple as that. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. And no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen, you will probably learn something using Sunbasket. I know that I have. And now you have more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes. Easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft-cooked eggs. And that's one they always put in here. I'm going to tell you the ones this week. Summer chicken salad with charred plum, arugula, and walnuts. Burmese salmon salad with lemongrass and bell pepper. Pork carnita tacos with cabbage slaw and avocado. All of these sound delicious. I am actually getting hungry just reading from it. And they work from the best farms and suppliers to bring you the freshest organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafood. Everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in just about 30 minutes. There's something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. I always listen to podcasts while I make dinner. So maybe you could do that too. If you're making dinner right now and it's Sunbasket already, awesome. If you are making dinner it's not Sunbasket, try Sunbasket. You get a special deal because you're a listener of With Friends Like These. Go to sunbasket.com slash friends today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash friends for $35 off your first order sunbasket.com slash friends. In last week's show, I talked to Arjun Sethi about the survivors of hate crimes in America, especially hate crimes that have taken place uh, in the era of Trump. And it's very important to raise up the voices of those survivors. This week's question has to do with an observer of those events, however, an observer in the classroom where hate speech and hate crimes are increasing right alongside the ones in the general public. A report just out in Education Week in conjunction with ProPublica's Documenting Hate Project found almost 100 unique incidents of hate crimes and hate speech in K-12 schools in the past three years. Our listener, Alex, has seen some of that. And here is her question. Hi, Anna. I am a young Spanish teacher, 23 to be exact, so fresh off the college presses. I teach in a small high school that I would hesitate to call a suburb of Chicago. 
since going to college and leaving my conservative home in Wyoming that I grew up in, I've become a quite passionate liberal and was overjoyed to vote for Hillary in my first election. The school that I teach at is not only small, less than 200 students in grades 9 through 12, but also not very diverse. I have a handful of students of color, LGBTQ students, etc., but the majority are what I would call homogenous. You on your pod often talk so much about how to address bias and racism in our government, workplaces, and communities, but I feel that we don't talk enough about how these issues affect youth and how to deal with them in youth. In my first year of teaching at this school, I heard more usage of the N-word by white children than I ever could imagine. Other favorites were discriminatory towards gays, lesbians, Asians, Mexicans, and so on. I'll let you fill in the blank, and I probably heard it. Every time I heard these things, I made my best effort to address it and bring it to their attention as unkind. I tried to explain why that language would not be welcome in my classroom, but my control of the situation can only go so far. I have struggled to address issues such as Trump's wall and the fact that people who speak Spanish don't all look the same and come from Mexico. A fellow teacher had a professor come in and had to specifically address the fact that she was black the day before, warning them that if anything was said, there would be serious consequences. I don't know how much longer I can stay in an environment that is so hostile towards others, but I also feel a pull to help them move past their biases and racism and teach them as much as I can. I myself am white, so little of their hate is geared towards me, except for the occasional comments about liberals, but my heart still hurts for the few minority students who live with this around them every day. Do you have any suggestions or an expert who can address how to deal with these issues with children and teenagers? Thanks so much for your work on the pod. Now, as an extra added bonus, we actually have that listener right here on the line. Alex, hi, how are you? I'm good. It's great. How are you? I am okay. I am even better than okay because I do have a friend to help us uh, uh, dig into your question, and it's Jamil Smith. Jamil! Hey, how you doing? Hi, friend of the show. Um, and now actually you have to tell me what's your official title at Rolling Stone. Senior writer at Rolling Stone magazine. Right. Friend of the show, senior writer at Rolling Stone magazine. First, I'm going to note, you know, neither of us are legal experts or necessarily pedagogy experts. Uh, but I did look into to what the professional resources are here. And you probably already know this because I assume you've done done the Googling, but there is uh, there are lesson plans available from Human Rights Coalition, from an organization called Teaching Tolerance. And also the Quakers do some training around this, the American Friends Society. But I also get from your question, like you're kind of looking less at, you know, lesson plans and more at just what do I do on a day to day basis? Is that what I understand from your question? Um, yeah, I mean, I've kind of tried some lessons on my own. Like I, I taught a book about an immigrant um, who comes from Guatemala during their civil war. And I was like, look, a real person, you know, we can respect others and their struggles. And I still kind of got a lot of pushback even from from that. And then the day to day of the things I hear kids say, you know, it's not like your friends where you can be like, whoa, you know, 
I don't appreciate that. You kind of have to send them to the principal's office or bring it up and have a whole conversation in more of a disciplined manner than just a friend-to-friend type of thing. Wait, so you're saying you you can have those conversations in a disciplined manner or that that's not an option? Um, I would say it's an option. It's it's kind of difficult. There's been not a whole lot of help from like the the upper levels of, you know, the principal or whatever. If you send a kid down to the office and you say, hey, this kid was saying, you know, these words or these, you know, hurtful things, there might not be a whole lot of help there. So I tried to kind of do it, you know, in my own classroom and create more of a safe space, you know, and say, hey, those things are not welcome here, but there's only Mm -hmm. so much you can control, you know, without literally telling everyone to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Charlotte Clymer and I dealt with this a little bit, another educator this time at the college level, a slightly different situation in that the students were older. But in some ways, I think some of the lessons that we we came up with there might be useful, which is number one, it is it is something to have your own classroom be a safe space and to have your own language reflect the values that you're trying to instill. Um, to use gender neutral pronouns when talking about unknown subjects, um, you know, to use maybe uh, examples from you know diverse cultures when you're talking about about. Any talking about random stuff, but use diverse cultures and names and whatnot. I think those little things really do help. Also, sharing from your own life, if you happen to mention, you know, diverse group of friends, um, your own like background and, and what you've come from and what you've in, in, in encountered. Um, Jamila, like, do you, when Charlotte and I talked about this um, with a college professor, Charlotte talked about how important it was for her when she was growing up before she transitioned, like those little breadcrumbs that got dropped by various people in her life that showed them to be tolerant, how she was able to pick up on that and right. it kind of gave her permission to share from them. Do you, do, can you, can you say if that is something that you experienced that's helpful? Oh, certainly. Um, I think that definitely that's a, uh that's an applicable, uh, you know, model in my, in my instance, at least. I mean, when I was in college, I wouldn't say it was homophobic necessarily, but I was definitely, you know, I guess raised to be maybe less tolerant or, or just hadn't had much experience around, uh, you know, LGBTQ people. And, um, I learned through immersion. Um, it learned, you know, first of all, I did take an active interest in learning more about that community, but at the same time, you know, I think that, you know, the one good thing you have here is that you have a captive audience, you know, Alexander, I think you yeah. have, you know, you have people who are required to be in your classroom every day or every day yeah. at certain times during the week. And I think that offers a number of options. And uh, one of the options that, uh, you know, I think is not necessarily talking, but maybe, you know, active experience, immerse, you know, immersing them in a particular, you know, culture or what have you, or, um, you know, in, in your case, obviously you use language as a tool to do that. But, you know, at the same time, the key for me, and I think for a lot of other people whom I've seen, is to disincentivize the behavior. And, you know, I mean, you know, being sent to the principal, I don't know, I, I was a pretty good kid. I didn't, but I even I kind of shrugged at that, you know, there are ways, I think, to disincentivize that behavior that, you know, maybe go beyond that. I mean, have, have there 
I certainly wouldn't have wanted my parents called. Um, I certainly mm-hmm. wanted, you know, wouldn't want, uh, you know, to be shamed for it, you know, within the classroom or outside of it. I understand that you have limits and duties as a teacher, but I think definitely these young people need to understand that that behavior not only is not acceptable, but it's not accepted, you know, and, and I think, you know, encouraging other students, I don't know, to, to what degree do other students in the classroom when, you know, this kind of behavior is going on, what, to what extent do they speak up? To what, to what extent are they vocal about this or in opposition to those viewpoints? Um, I've definitely had a few students. I mean, obviously not every student I teach is acting like this or, you know, has such extreme um, biases. I think, you know, calling parents is an option, but something I've kind of noticed or run into is that a lot of these behaviors have been learned at home and mm-hmm. through the the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I've tried to kind of, like you said, immerse them in, in culture or it's kind of easy with Spanish, but, you know, language and bring in stuff. Um, it's hard to do that when there really isn't that anywhere near them. Kind of like they live in a little bubble. Right. Yeah. So I had a couple of thoughts about the the fact that you do teach Spanish and, and how that might be useful. I mean, one of them is to bring in Spanish speakers, right? I mean, you said that you, a colleague of yours brought in a person of color and that was in itself kind of a sensitive moment. There was concern about it. But do you think that's an option to bring in people from the community who speak Spanish, who can be interviewed by the students? Um, it definitely could be. I have a handful of of native speakers who um, I have actually considered bringing in like their parents or grandparents um, family members to kind of just talk with students about their lives or whatever, just in Spanish so that they can kind of see that it's real people, you know, not yeah. just imaginary or in a book or in a textbook. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that to the extent that there are studies about this stuff, it is contact with people. And like Jamil uh, alluded to immersion, that seems to make the most difference in getting people to rethink their prejudices and assumptions. So I think that's like a huge tool that you can use as a Spanish instructor is just to bring in as many different people as possible. And I know that the kids themselves aren't necessarily fluent, so I understand that it might have to be a kind of combination English-Spanish interview. Um, but that that leaps to mind. Um, also, I think that getting them to understand that their views come from someplace could be an interesting avenue. Uh, on this show... I talk a lot about rather than kind of challenging people in, in you know, directly and saying something like you are wrong to think that or that is incorrect. It is really useful to say, you know, why do you believe that or where does that idea come from? And I wonder if that's something that you could use with these students as well. Yeah, definitely kind of like a, a conversation of of where our opinions come from things like that. It's actually, it's interesting. Sometimes I've had students ask me, they're like, what does this word mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like one time, I forget what it was. It was something related to um, the LGBTQ community. And, you know, I sat them down and I said, well, you know, it's really not great for you to say that. And here's why. And so on a, an individual level, it's been kind of easy to have those conversations, but it's difficult in a classroom setting, I think, without causing almost a little bit too much of a, a ripple. Um with some of them, I think. Yeah, I think that this probably is going to be something that happens more individually on the classroom level when you're talking about 
specific, you know, instances of prejudice. And I guess that also brings me to a big overarching question to think about, which is what your comfort level is in this environment. Like in your email, you allude to the fact that this is something you're really struggling with. Uh, Is that, are you kind of feeling like you need to make a big decision about whether or not you stay in this position or, or where, where is your comfort right now in dealing with this? Um, yeah, it kind of, the feeling started, I think it was on one of your podcasts, you said, you know, you can talk to your friends about, you know, their racism or whatever, but there's a certain point where you kind of have to, you know, take care of yourself and cut it out. And so I started thinking about it. And I mean, I am going back in like two weeks to teach <laughs> for another year, but I think it is kind of one of those those things that I'm having to reconcile with, you know, my job, which I would like to have. And I, I feel like I can help students learn. And also my own, like you said, my own comfortable, you know, how I feel with it, how I want to feel when I come home from work. Do I want to be sad and, you know, not feel so great? Or do I want to feel like I've made a, a difference in the day? Well, I want to loop Jamil back in here, but I will say that I think there. There is something to be said for making sure that just your personal off-hour life is used um, to to forward your values. Like, I, I'm actually someone that kind of believes in, in you know, doing your extra credit where you can, <laughs> to use the teacher <laughs> metaphor. Yes. Like, um, if you're doing your marches and you're writing letters and you're, you know, looking at campaigns that, that you either give money to or volunteer for, I think that counts for a lot, right? Like, you may not be able to do, like, extraordinary amount of social justice work in your classroom life. Um, but ha- having the freedom, having a job that allows you to do that work in your off hours is meaningful. <laughs> sort of like the way that we've talked about treating one's, you know, mental health on this show, like making sure that you are well enough so that you can help other people. I think there's something to be said for that. Um, Jamil, what do you think about this more existential question about whether or not she should be where she is? Yeah, I think that, um, honestly, the fact that you're asking this question to me tells me that you're exactly where you need to be that you're the person that is thinking about these issues, concerned about these issues and willing to do something uh, is not necessarily something I would assume that every teacher would be ready to do. So I, you know, I, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't want to, you know, discourage you from, um, from, you know, from maybe seeking something else or, or, or doing something else. That said, I think that one of the things at the end of the day, it meant the simplest thing that you might be able to do is just make them really good at Spanish. Um, (laughs) Because here's the thing is that, you know, when, if they're really good at it and I, you know, I still have some of my college Spanish in my head. I'm trying to get better out here in California, but I'm, (laughs) I'm working on it. And the fact that I, I know some Spanish, you know, I was able to watch the news and I would hear the calls of these children who were incarcerated. And I could understand what they were saying, you know, mm-hmm. and if they can understand with so much, so many Spanish speakers in our press right now, you, you know, not just presenters, but also you're hearing a lot of voices of migrants and of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, you know, other folks who are uh, you know, speaking to the issues of our, of our day in Spanish. I think that that also may be a way to reach them, you know, unconsciously. And that 
that I think, you know, I understand the, you know, the personal stress that this may bring, but I think that that may offer a degree of satisfaction that goes even beyond uh, getting through to them on a political level or in some kind of like, you know, one-on-one conversation. If you make them really good at what you're there to do, uh, then uh, I think that, you know, that will have resonance throughout their lives and it may not clean up their behavior in the classroom right now, but I think that, you know, years from now, they'll come to thank you and they'll come to, they'll come to understand exactly why, you know, language diversity is so important, why diversity period is so important and, uh, and why you were trying to get through them. You know, I, I think that there's, there's very few of us out here who, who don't necessarily have a regret about how we behaved in high school. And, uh, I think that, uh, you know, if they don't get it now, they may get it later. And I think that what you're teaching them has a specific use in terms of, uh, maybe changing their, their perspective on the world. It is true that one of, you know, the big tools that we, try to use when we're talking about tolerance and diversity is understanding, right? So the fact that you're teaching your students to literally understand people who are different themselves, one hopes that that would, you know, mold their brains a little bit. Um, do you have anything else you want to ask before we wrap up? Have we we've gotten to most of what you're trying to sort through? I think so. I think Jamila really helped there saying that, you know, I, I'm kind of in the right place knowing that I'm thinking about it. Someone has to kind of plant the seed in the students, you know, brains to help them kind of realize maybe later, you know, I kind of realized later in life that I, you know, needed to change some opinions. Um, so I think if I stay there and I help them and I give what I can to it, then hopefully someday some of them, you know, they move out of their little town or they meet some people and they kind of get the point of, of what I was pushing so hard for, you know, every day in my class. It's true. And something, you know, I say a lot on this show is that the best form of evangelism isn't trying to convince people. It's living your values, right? It's a program mm-hmm. of attraction and not promotion. Mm-hmm. So you're definitely the right person. And it, it seems like you also might be in the right place. And that's it for the show. Thank you for sticking around. If you have enjoyed listening and if you are a super fan, well, you might mosey on over to iTunes and rate and review us there or wherever it is you download your podcast from. And in case you're wondering, I'm doing a little bit better these days. I hope you are too. And whether you are or not, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And we'll be back next week. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.